A man had a fig tree that had been planted in his vineyard, and one day he went looking for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he took his gardener aside and said to him, Look at that tree. For three years I have come seeking fruit from it, and never once have I found any. Cut it down. Why does it even waste space in the ground? But the gardener responded, Give it another chance, another year. I will tend to it and fertilize it and do what I can. If next year it bears fruit, then excellent, and if not, then I will cut it down. Good morrow, everybody, and welcome to Stories of Symmetry. My name is Ben Laboot, and this fortnightly podcast strives to reveal beauty and purpose through another look at faith, the sacred, and the stories that unite us all. Today we are talking about the fig tree and its season for fruit. The tale we just heard is a parable of Jesus, taken from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13. The story features three characters, more or less, each of which is open to interpretation. We know that they are the owner, the gardener, and the tree itself. Working last to first, we have the fruitless fig tree, who is a rather passive character. Things can happen to the tree, and the tree is a subject of discussion, but the tree itself is silent. It was unable to ask the owner for another chance. It could not say that it would try harder, and indeed it could not even voice if it wanted to. I am done being a fig tree with no fruit. I prefer that you cut me down. The second character is the gardener, and this nameless individual is the hero of the story. The gardener interceded for the tree and risked the owner's wrath by protesting the command to fell the tree. Instead, he offered an alternative which was hopefully satisfactory for all parties. Although the owner said to chop the tree down, we know that the order was in response to the tree's lack of fruit, that more so than remove the tree, the owner wanted it to produce figs. So the gardener said that the first choice was still possible, only give him some time to tend the tree and see what happens. Such an exchange reminds us of a story in which a young prisoner of war was given a diet that violated his conscience. But instead of give in and eat, or stubbornly refuse, Daniel instead proposed that he be given a simple diet of vegetables, assuring his master that if, after eating that fare, he were not as strong and healthy as he could be, then he would accept the original rations without further complaint. Daniel's captor agreed, because his true goal was seeing to Daniel's health, not the particular food, be it one kind or another, that he ate. If Daniel could flourish with a simpler, cheaper diet, then all the better. In the same way, the gardener tells the owner of the fig tree, give me one year to work with the tree and do what I can. And if after that time it still does not bear fruit, then I will cut it down. Implying that, but if it does bear fruit, then everybody is happy. This parable's third character is the owner. He seems a bit brazen and demanding, but that could be because our only experience with him is as he is issuing a command to chop down a tree. Perhaps, though, there are more dimensions to the character. We don't know how much effort he himself had put into the tree. Neither do we know why he wanted the fruit. Initially, 
we might assume that it was for himself. Perhaps picturing a pompous, besotted lord who already had more fruit and other delights than he knew what to do with. Then again, he could have been a simple man with only a few plants adorning his modest dwelling. Maybe he planted the fig for his daughter, whose favorite delectation was a freshly picked fig. The fruitless tree breaks her heart, and so it breaks his, and so he plans to remove it and try again. Indeed, we have no indication about these hypothetical background dramas, nor whatever was really the case. So in fairness, we cannot pass judgment or make claims about motivations. All we know is that the owner told the gardener to hew the tree, and that he let the gardener advise that it be kept a while longer. However, like nearly all parables, we do not know the outcome. Did the owner give the gardener the requested year? If so, did the tree ever bear fruit? If he kept the tree that year, but it did not produce, did he follow through with its removal, or keep it nevertheless? These resolutions are missing because they are irrelevant to the lesson. It makes no difference whether this fictitious fig tree bore fruit or not. There are more important questions to ask. If I were the gardener, would I have the boldness to risk the owner's displeasure and intercede for the tree? If I were the owner, would I heed the gardener's advice or be unyielding? Would I offer another chance? We can also ask, if I were the fig tree, would I bear fruit? Before, I mentioned that the fig tree seems to be a passive character in this tale, and forsooth, that's all we have given to us. But what if that's too simplistic of you? What if the tree indeed does have some say in whether or not it produces figs? The gardener will do what he can through fertilizing, tending, watering, etc., but in the end, no amount of husbandry or Herculean strength can make the tree bear fruit. The figs come from the tree, and the tree alone. But like Charlie Brown's not-such-a-bad-little-Christmas-tree, the fig tree needs some help. Therefore, what we see is not a project of the gardener, but a partnership of the two, a collaboration. And blessed is the tree that has a gardener who inexplicably feels responsible to the tree and is willing to put forth great risk and effort and expense to see that the tree be given a second chance. As far as we can tell, the gardener has no external motivation toward the tree, only the goodness of his heart which cares for the tree that has no one else to care for it. The gardener has a soft spot for cripples, bastards, and broken things. In the Bible, we hear it phrased that God cares about orphans and widows, foreigners, paupers, and the marginalized of society, and that Jesus loves fishermen, prostitutes, tax collectors, and sinners. The incipients of the movement with which Jesus brought good news to those tax collectors, sinners, and others began with a few key events, including baptism, overcoming temptation, and choosing twelve devout followers to join him in ministry. One of those disciples was Nathaniel, and believe it or not, a fig tree was the nudge he needed to believe in Jesus. John remembered the encounter in the first chapter of his gospel. It reads, Now Philip, who was from the same town as Simon Peter and Andrew, and who Jesus had recently called to follow him, 
went to Nathanael and said, We have found him, the one whom Moses and the prophets spoke about. It is Jesus, the son of Joseph, from Nazareth. Nathanael answered, Can anything good come from Nazareth? Philip responded, Come and see for yourself. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said, Behold, Nathanael is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael asked Jesus, How do you know anything about me? Because, Jesus told him, I saw you sitting under the fig tree before Philip even came to you. You are the one, Nathanael exclaimed. You really are the Son of God and King of Israel. Jesus answered, Does this impress you so? That I said, I saw you under the fig tree? Then, turning to the others gathered there, he said, I am telling you that you will see greater things than this. Truly, you all will see the welkin opened up and the heavenly host ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. It's not clear what relationship Jesus and Nathanael had prior to this encounter, if any. Philip's description of Jesus as Jesus, the son of Joseph, from Nazareth, might imply that they had met Jesus previously, perhaps on the pilgrim road to or from Jerusalem, perhaps working together on one of the region's building projects. Perhaps no familiarity whatsoever. Whatever the case, Nathaniel is certainly no fan of Nazareth. Can anything good come from there, he quipped. Unimpressed by this Jesus from Nazareth, Nathaniel nevertheless obliged Philip's encouragement, Come, and see for yourself. As Nathaniel approached Jesus, who presumably was surrounded by at least a small following, the man from Nazareth called out, Look, everyone, Nathaniel is coming. If ever there were a decent Israelite, this is he, a role model for us all. This remark was almost certainly not sarcastic but genuine encomium, sincerely praising and recognizing Nathaniel's character, character that was evinced by his reply. Instead of bask in such approval, Nathaniel cautiously inquired, Who are you to say this thing? You and I don't know each other. Nathaniel is sober-minded and will not be won over by empty flattery from a Nazarene. But Jesus followed with a word that disarmed Nathaniel and made a believer out of him. It was one of those rare, perfect one-liners that have the power to change individual lives on the spot. Jesus did not say, I can tell by how you carry yourself that you're a decent fellow. Nor did he say, I've asked around about you and have heard nothing but the best things. Nor did he say, Philip speaks very highly of you and I trust his judgment. Rather, Jesus did say, Even before Philip brought you over, I saw you sitting under the fig tree. When I first encountered this story, I thought that when Philip went to tell Nathaniel about Jesus, Nathaniel was sitting under a fig tree, napping, eating, whittling, doing whatever it is that someone in the first century would have been doing sitting in a fig tree shade on a lazy afternoon, and that Nathaniel was out of sight from Jesus so that when Nathanael and Philip left the fig tree and went over to meet Jesus, and Jesus said that he saw Nathanael under the fig tree, Nathanael was impressed and thought, Wow, but I was all the way on the other side of the hill, 
How did you see me there? That's amazing. Straightforward as this explanation is, and granted it can neither be proved nor disproved, it paints Nathaniel as a bit superstitious, and Jesus as gimmicky, like a fortune teller or con artist playing to vulnerable people's emotions and leading them with vague universalities. As if Jesus closed his eyes, placed his hand on Nathaniel's forehead and cried, Behold, Nathaniel, I see that you're sick and tired of Rome and its unfair taxes. You feel underappreciated at work and worry about finances. I would wager that you even enjoy relaxing in the shade of fig trees. These statements, of course, describing 90% of the crowd. But if we take a closer look at what's going on, I don't think that Jesus was being a scammer, and I don't think that Nathaniel was one to be led so easily. Firstly, the author never said that Nathaniel was under a fig tree when Philip came to meet him. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't but no such detail is provided. And if he was not, then Jesus' remark, before Philip brought you, I saw you under the fig tree, doesn't make a whole lot of sense, and it certainly doesn't fit into a magician's stage show. Secondly, Nathaniel was just too sober-minded. He was not the type of person eager to believe Jesus and give in to his charisma. No, Nathaniel was skeptical. He refused to be hyped up by either Philip or the crowd. He was reserved. He was unimpressed. He went into the encounter with a low opinion of Jesus because he was from Nazareth. Nathaniel was not poised to fall for Jesus. Instead, he was poised to scoff and walk away. But then Jesus said, I saw you under the fig tree. And everything changed for Nathaniel right then and there. So what was it about the fig tree? Clearly, Jesus was not alluding to supernatural ability to physically see Nathaniel when out of view. No, there was something deeper there. Figs, and the trees on which they grow, are mentioned throughout the Bible. Sometimes they are symbolic. At others, they are referenced as nothing more than delicious food, like cucumbers, raisins, olives, and the many others used by the Bible to whet our appetites. In this case, Nathaniel's case, they are symbolic. For the shade cast by its broad leaves, and the sweet fruit born, having both symmetry and asymmetry, being smooth yet rough, viscid yet not encumbering, the unassuming fig tree and its fruit are reminiscent of God's instruction to mankind. By the time of Jesus and Nathanael, the fig tree had come to be a metonym for the Torah, the teaching that God, through Moses, had given to the Israelites that they might have a full, rewarding, God-centered life of justice and righteousness and completeness and love and liberty and animation and the fullness of the Lord. But as we discussed in Rules for Kings, Season 1, Episode 9, those teachings called Torah, though they served a necessary purpose, they fell short of perfection because they were fundamentally beyond human capacity. Thus, we can never hope to fulfill our part of the agreement, that is, obey the Torah fully, and inure ourselves of the fullness of God's promise. The Israelites, to whom the hope was given, fell short of the Torah because they were but humans 
and perfect like all others. But they held on to the Torah's own promise that God would one day send someone who would live up to God's mandates perfectly. That savior, a priest king, was called the Messiah, and his arrival was eagerly sought because he would fulfill God's Torah. Or another way to say that is that he would perfect it, literally bring it through to completion, and in doing so, right the wrongs between God and people, and create a means to enter into the fullness of life with God. Therefore, the Torah and the Messiah are deeply intertwined. The Torah promises a Messiah that can perfect it, and the Messiah brings God near to us through fulfillment of the Torah. That duality of Torah and Messiah, Messiah and Torah, were the esteem of devout first-century Jews. To study and keep the Torah as best one can, but knowing that the Messiah is needed. Therefore, to pine for that Savior, priest-king, and be ready to follow him when he arrived. The crux of Nathaniel's confession, and the hidden fruit beneath the rind, is that to be under the fig tree, metaphorically speaking, was to be in keeping with the Torah and Messiah, to study the former and anticipate the latter. To strive to obey the Torah, I, but to recognize the arrival of Messiah. Accordingly, when Jesus told Nathanael that he saw him under the fig tree, he was not saying, I saw you by a tree when you didn't think that I could see you. Aren't I full of superhuman powers? No, Jesus in a very real way was saying, Nathanael, before Philip even joined our paths, I knew, as I know, that you are the quintessential Israelite. For I know how you wait under the fig tree, how you stay close to God, keep what is asked of you, and are waiting and hoping for the Messiah, and will recognize him when you see him. At these words, a fog must have cleared in Nathaniel's vision. He must have recognized. Because Nathaniel, never mind that it was somewhat reluctantly, because he came and saw, and because he spent time beneath the fig tree, he cognized the arrival of Messiah. Though Jesus did not come with tumblers and trumpets, Nathaniel knew, he recognized, and he confessed, you truly are the Son of God and the King of Israel. Knowing what we know about fig trees, how they can either represent profound ideas or be simply trees with tasty fruit, let's consider an encounter that Jesus had with none other than a fig tree. The Gospel of Mark says that, as Jesus was walking from Bethany to Jerusalem, he became hungry, and seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went over to look for something on it, but when he arrived at the tree, he found only leaves. There was no fruit because it was not yet the season for figs. Then Jesus said to the tree, May no one eat your fruit ever again. Later in the chapter, we see the aftermath. The next morning on the way from Bethany to Jerusalem, some of the disciples saw the fig tree from the previous day and that it had withered. Then Peter remarked, 
Teacher, look, the tree you cursed has withered overnight. And Jesus replied, You all must have faith in God. Truly, I am telling you that with faith, a person can stand up to this mountain and say, Be gone, throw yourself into the sea. And if that person truly believes, without any doubt or hesitation of heart, then it will happen. Know this, that whatever you ask for in faithful prayer, believing that it is already done, it will be yours. And in the same way, if you have a grudge against anyone, forgive that person, knowing and believing in your heart that God has already forgiven you. Fig trees in ancient Israel must have lived in a state of constant anxiety, at one moment being elevated to the levels of Torah and Messiah, and the next being threatened with death for not fruiting, as we saw with the fig tree in the opening parable and this one here that Jesus cursed. Even though, as the author points out, it was not yet the season for figs. The first story we looked at today, about the owner, the gardener, and the tree, was, as we know, just a parable, ones whose resolution was left unmentioned. In that tale, we are probably safe to assume that the gardener represents Jesus, who intercedes for us, the fig tree, fallen short of the owner's, that is, God's, expectations. However, in Mark's gospel, the story he relays is not a parable, but a real-life account. And yet, it is even stranger to us, for it almost appears as if Jesus diverged from his characteristic love and forgiveness and gave way to a vengeful conniption toward a fruitless tree, even though it wasn't even the season for figs. Whereas, in the parable, Jesus interceded for the tree, here, on the road from Bethany to Jerusalem, it was Jesus himself who cursed it. Jesus knew that trees, including fig trees, have their seasons. But even without that understanding, unjustified anger contradicts everything we know about Jesus. Even if he were hungry and genuinely expecting fruit to be there, he would not become angry at it and kill it. If nothing else, this was, after all, the very same Jesus who refused to eat bread after 40 days of fasting in the wilderness. Lastly, the Gospel of Mark is, of all four Gospels, the most streamlined. It is the Gospel that ends with Mary and some of the other followers trembling at the realization of Jesus' resurrection. Later editions had to go back and append a clarifying envoie that explained, oh, and everything worked out. Jesus was with his followers over the next 40 days and commissioned them to spread the gospel. This is to say that it is highly unlikely that the author of Mark would have included a random tidbit like that time hangry Jesus cursed the tree. That is, unless if there was more to the story than hunger, ire, and the death of an innocent tree. So what is really going on here? One helpful clue is to look at the content that separated Jesus cursing the tree and their return the following day to see that it had withered. In the middle of this story, we find the following. Then Jesus continued on to Jerusalem, and when he had come to the temple, he began to drive off the people that were selling offerings for profit, and he did not let anyone carry things through the temple area. He spoke to the people and said, 
It is written that the house of God is a house of prayer for all nations, and yet you have made it a den for thieves and robbers. Then Mark gives this parenthetical aside. Because of what Jesus had done there, many high-ranking members of the Jewish clergy began devising plans to destroy Jesus and his growing movement. And as we heard already, the story resumed that, the next morning, as they were once again journeying from Bethany to Jerusalem, they saw that the tree from the previous day had withered. If the moral of the story is still shrouded, then I don't blame you. So let's consider the scene at the temple, placed in the middle of the fig tree narrative. When Jesus was at the temple, he saw the courtyard filled with stands and shops selling offerings for profit. His ire swelled, and he flipped over the tables and drove out the people who were running them. He announced that while the temple of God was meant to be a place of prayer for all people, it had instead become a haven for crooked and opportunistic merchants to prey on their fellow countrymen. Flipping tables, like cursing a fig tree, might, again, seem uncharacteristic of Jesus. But that's only if you haven't actually gotten to know the man. Jesus did not flip the tables in the way that some people punch a wall or snap their pencil. Rather, he made a display of what theologians call righteous anger. Anger toward injustice. And indeed the Gospels contain many instances of this type of reaction. We should note also that when Jesus is harsh, it is toward very specific types of people. Not prostitutes, nor tax collectors, nor lotharios. No, to those people Jesus showed kindness, mercy, and grace. Rather, those who incurred his wrath were the people who led people away from God while making pretenses of doing the opposite. Hypocrites and committers of injustice. The religious leaders were frequently the target of his opprobrium. That's because the priests and biblical scholars were supposed to help people find God. However, they oftentimes made it tougher. We see this in the temple scene. It was not a crime to sell offerings, as indeed the people had been told by God to give them, and the people needed to acquire those oblations somehow. Yet what Jesus saw was not an honest exchange of goods, but severe price gouging. The merchants had used the law to ensure that only their goods were fit for sacrifice, purified for God, as it were, and with that monopoly on the market, they charged unreasonable prices, knowing that for people to obey the Jewish law, they would have to buy through them. You see, it was not the selling of offerings per se. It was that they were sold in such a way that those who managed the temple were taking advantage of ordinary people trying to be faithful to God to the best of their understandings. The powerful taking advantage of the powerless. The temple was supposed to help people find their way to God but instead it had become a place that hindered that pursuit, and instead lined the pockets of dishonest merchants and the officials in league with them. Now, can we return to the fig tree in question and explain it with this new understanding? Can we maybe say that the fig tree led Jesus astray by looking like it might have fruit, thus drawing Jesus nearer, but then actually lacking figs, the consequence being that Jesus exclaimed, You Tree are deceptive. Be cursed now, that you may deceive the hungry traveler no more. 
perhaps we might spend more time on this theory, had not the author gone out of his way to explain to us that it was not the season for figs. The encounters at the temple and with the fig tree occurred only days prior to Jesus' execution, which he knew with certainty would happen. Therefore, at the end of his roughly three-year ministry, the tone of his teaching became more urgent and to the point, with a sense of, if you remember nothing else, remember these things. Apparently, one of those things was that a fig tree en route from Bethany to Jerusalem ought to have had fruit, even though it was not the season for figs. In addition to the fig tree, one could say that the nation of Israel itself was out of season. The heydays of Moses or Joshua or the unified kingdom were long gone. The timing indicated by the prophets implied that the Messiah would come within but a few generations of Jesus. But as far as the nation as a whole could tell, he had not yet arrived, although many believed that maybe this Jesus was the one. When he entered Jerusalem, the masses even welcomed him as a triumphant king, despite the fact that he had not yet sat on any earthly throne. The fig tree too had leaves, indicating that it soon would produce fruit. But from afar, it was dubious. Jesus approached the tree thinking that fruit might have come in already, but alas, it hadn't. For both the people and the tree, it was still the wrong season. And yet, by his actions there at the fig tree, Jesus taught us that there actually is no such thing as the wrong season. Even if it feels like the proper time has not yet come, we should still have fruit. We should still be fruit, preparing the way for Messiah. In short, we need to be doing God's work always regardless of whether the timing feels right or wrong. Peter remarked, Look, teacher, the tree you cursed has withered. To which Jesus replied, You all must have faith in God. Initially, it appears that the example does not match the notes, as if the teacher brought to this lesson a demonstration intended for another. But when we think about it in terms of seasons and timing, then it makes perfect sense. Jesus said, I am telling you that with faith, you can tell this mountain, even the very temple mount of Beit HaMikdash, to cast itself into the sea. And believe me that if you have sincere, unwavering faith, if you truly believe, then it will happen. The message is that if we put our faith in God's plan, then it can happen no matter how unlikely. We should assess neither God's calling nor God's power from the lens of, is it the right time? It is always the right time. If the Lord bids you wait, then you will know. But if God says to go for it, then hie yourself and go. Indeed, there is no inopportunity nor bad timing when it comes to God's ability. We just need to have faith. Think about the widow who baked Elijah bread during a famine. She had faith enough to believe that if she did what the prophet requested, then God would not let her go hungry, even though, humanly speaking, 
there was not enough flour to make that happen. After years of famine, all she had left was one serving of flour. But God sent her a prophet who needed food. It was simply the wrong time for such a request. It was not her season for bearing fruit. Perhaps a few years earlier, she would have had something to spare, or in another year or two when the crops returned. Notwithstanding, we remember her today because she baked Elijah bread, and forsooth the Lord did not let her starve. I guess there was fruit on her branches after all. God commissions us to bear fruit in all seasons, having faith that where we or the times fall short, God will yield the difference. Jesus called his followers to lives of preternatural abilities, superhuman capacities for generosity and love and erenicism and forgiveness and justice and bearing fruit no matter the season. So of the many questions that were asked today, the one that concludes our thoughts is, if I were a fig tree, would I bear fruit? Like the parable we first looked at, the ability is a cooperation between the tree and the gardener. But when we have Jesus to intercede for us, and the Holy Spirit to tend us, offering more resources than we can even know what to do with, the buck then passes to us, the tree, to put forth the effort to produce fruit, in season and out of season, which is exactly God's expectation for us. A life spent with God is not one of complacency, since before Jesus, before Abraham even, God has charged us with this daunting task, beyond all of us humanly speaking, but that is why the Lord has promised to join us in the undertaking, that is, if we choose to accept the help. Therefore, in the tradition that has come before us, and in the witness of humble fig trees, I speak over you the very words that the Apostle Paul spoke over Timothy. In the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, by his appearing and his kingdom, I charge you to proclaim the word of God, whether it is convenient or inconvenient, whether the time seems fitting or unfitting, whether it is in season or out of season, to teach and explain and correct, and to do so with encouragement and the perfect patience of a saint. Thank you for joining Stories of Symmetry today. No matter your season, I hope that today's content was uplifting and instructive. If you feel that this show helps you find beauty and purpose, then please share it with others. And also consider leaving a positive rating or review wherever you listen. Remember to check out blogs, episodes, and more online at storiesofsymmetry.com, and that you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Stories of Symmetry. The next episode will be out in two weeks, and between now and then, Consider asking yourself questions that begin, If I were a fig tree. And as you do so, go with God, go in peace.